Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And as you know, in the last week or two, a lot has been going on with the uh, the gay marriage passing and the Confederate flag. Not to tell you something, I saw something that just cracked me up today on the internet because everyone's so serious about this stuff. But there was these guys in Georgia. I don't know what town it was, but they had all these trucks and they were running with their Confederate flags. It was like a parade. And some guy's videoing it. And he's like, I can't believe this. There's trucks, there's trucks, there's trucks. And then one truck stops and the other truck hits him and another truck hits him. And I'm thinking that is like the worst thing to show like you're passionate for something and getting in a car accident because you know that shit's going viral and you know everything is viral. And I'm just laughing. And, and the best is the guy's commentary because the guy's like, oh, look out. Oh, and he, it was just great. Anyway, enough about that. We have a we have a great guest, a great actor, a uh, fly fisherman, and a uh, big Seahawks football fan. We have Scott McDonald. How are you doing, Scott? Hi, good to see you. Nice to be here. Good to see you. So uh, I gotta ask you. Well, well, the Seahawks. First of all, it must have been great when you won the Super Bowl a few years ago. Oh man, it was unreal and very heartbreaking last Super Bowl too against uh, the Pats. But uh, just to be there back to back was special. And I'm a long timer. I was in from inception. I grew up in the Northwest. And uh, when the team uh, became an NFL team, we just kind of adopted them. They were our our team. I grew up in a small Northwestern Montana town. And the television feed back in those days came from Spokane, Washington. So we got all the Seahawk games. So that was our team. And uh, so a lot of us just adopted them. But I can remember sending in postcards to vote on the name of the team. Oh, really? Yes. And and uh, there that like for example, I, one that I remember being really worried about was someone from Yakima had sent in the Apple Knockers as a potential name, and I just thought, <laughs> can you imagine? You know, having because you're an expansion team, you know, you're going to be bad for a while. You got the Apple Knockers, and also there was a, the Silver Salmon was one of them. Now, what did you come up with? Uh, I just voted for the Seahawks okay. because that was one of them. The Seahawks was one of them. Another one of them was the Mariners because this preceded Mariner baseball. One of them was one of the names was Mariners. I can't remember how it all worked, but they, it got down to eight, and that was when I sent my postcard in because I was really worried about the Silver Salmon as being a football team's name. Now, how old were you when this happened? Um, probably. I don't remember exactly. I think I was probably like a sophomore in high school. So you had missed all. You didn't really have a team then before then. I mean, well, we didn't. We, you know, everybody in Libby has had that kind of thing where everybody rooted for their favorite team. A lot of Packer fans from the Bart Starr days and things like that. I mean, I'm, we're talking about 1976 here. So, um, you know, it was a while back. I was a St. Louis Cardinal fan. I liked uh, Eric Coriel and Jim Hart and on uh, those football teams. Eric Coriel. Yeah. Yeah, so that was a. Uh, but when the Seahawks came in, we just adopted them, and um, uh, then when the Cardinals moved and all that stuff, any sort of feeling of loyalty that I had for that team kind of went away. And uh, so I, you know, I just we just kind of adopted the Hawks, and you know, we, there's a lot more rough years than there were good ones. Oh yeah, I mean, there's lots and lots and lots. Winning of that years. title was special. It was, it was great. Really and, a fun season. And the crowd gets into it. You know, they just get so loud, and it's great. It's not like Atlanta who pumps sound in. That's you know, an unbelievable just, stadium. Have, you know, you've been there. It, it it rattles your teeth. It's that it's loud. Wild. It is unbelievable. So you grew up in Montana. Yep. And uh, how many people lived in your town? Uh, probably three thousand. So it was a small town. It was a small town. Now, yeah. as a kid, did you ever think you'd pursue acting? I mean, what, what did you want to do as a kid? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I kind of, I went to college at Washington State University when I graduated from high school out of Libby. And uh, I, I was, at that time, I wanted to be a DJ. Okay. And I was going to the Edward R. Murrow School of Broadcasting, and I was going to be a DJ. And my dad was a DJ. My dad was a... DJ and a program director at a major West Coast radio station. So we always had a little bit of an affinity and a little bit of an ear for those announcers. Uh, and my older brother is a DJ. He's uh, he's in Minnesota and he's uh, um, a rock DJ uh, uh, morning guy uh, at a rock station in uh, in Brainerd, Minnesota. So he and he went to Washington State. He preceded me there, so he went into the same program, and he got his degree. But while there, I started to do a few plays, and uh, I got pulled aside by the guy who ran the theater department, and he just basically said, not for nothing, but 
you got a knack for this. You're really good at this. I mean, of all the people in those freshman plays that we watched, you're the one everybody's talking about. And I kind of poo-pooed it a little bit, but he said, no, just, I'm not telling you to become an actor or anything. I'm just telling you that sometimes people need to hear that they're good at something. And, you know, I just gotten out of high school. I was an athlete. I was in plays in high school a little bit. And you're looking for somebody to tell you something when you're in college, you know, you're a little at sea. And, uh, that really sort of lit a fire in me. And I actually wound up getting two degrees, a degree in broadcasting and a degree in speech theater. Did you enjoy that when you started out? Did you really enjoy getting on stage? I mean, a lot of times people say just something hit them. They said it just caught yeah, them. Yeah, uh, that's that's it. That's it exactly. Uh, I ended up going to California Institute of the Arts for a master's degree after I graduated from Washington State. And that was a uh, that was the decision to decide to be a pro uh, because that was going to be a lot of money and uh, we were not wealthy. We, you know, we were, we did not have a lot of money when I was growing up and this was going to be graduate school. It was going to be, the loans were going to be on me. So I was in a situation there where that was the decision because it was a professional actor training program. And uh, I had to go down to San Francisco and audition for back then they had this thing called the league of professional training schools and it was Southern Methodist and, University of Washington and uh, Brandeis and uh, a lot of a lot of colleges and uh, you just audition for all of them and hope somebody'd pick you and uh, I got accepted to California Institute of the Arts and uh, that was where I really needed to sit down and think okay now if you're gonna go do this and spend all that money you're really deciding you're gonna be try to be a pro and uh, and and I did it. So, but you had said, okay, you're not going to do radio then because you, you're broadcasting. You weren't going to, you just put that stuff behind you? Yeah, it just, between the two, I, I just felt, you know, like you just said, you know, you got on stage and there was something there that lit a fire in me. There was something about that contact with the audience uh, that was uh, um, special. And, uh, and, and I think that's the best way to say it. It just kind of lit a fire in me. And then, Went to CalArts and got that training, and uh, I don't think there's any way I'm a pro if I don't go to CalArts. I mean, I had done a lot of plays. It was a lot of baptism by fire, but I had a lot of bad habits and, uh, and uh, you know, a, you know a, like all kids that age, I figured I had all the answers. And uh, what grad school taught me was that I didn't. <laughs> And that it was okay to be wrong. Right. And uh, that it was okay for a director to say, hey, try it this way. And uh, that it wasn't, you know, that sort of criticism was actually a constructive thing as opposed to a negative thing. Because that's the hard part when you're an actor is so many people are criticizing. I mean, it's a really fascinating industry to be in because John Q. Public feels that he has the right to tell you whether or not you were good or bad in something right. when they walk right up to you. So it's an interesting thing. And, it, and I think that school was particularly good for me in that way because... Uh, you got to have a leather skin. You got to be able to take those hits and get back up. And uh, uh, that school was good for me in that regard, I think. How long of a program was it? How many years? When I was there, it was two years. Now it's a three-year master's program. So I have a master's degree from there in theater. Now, what would they be teaching you in theater? I mean, is it just uh, the, the whole theater process or just? Yeah, it was pretty It was pretty comprehensive. We had movement. We had Tai Chi. We had voice classes. We had speech classes. We had acting classes. There was some music involved. Uh, it was a pretty comprehensive program and it w and it was, uh, uh, very constructive and it was pretty competitive. They, there was, uh, I was told when I got in that there were, uh, 1900 kids for 13 slots. Uh, and then at the end of, or maybe it was 15 because at the end of the first year, they cut two people out. They just, they would watch and just decide whether or not they thought you could be a pro. And if you, they didn't think you'd make it, they'd they'd cut you loose. So there was a lot of pressure and there were a lot of, uh, meetings. And, uh, interestingly, Don Cheadle was there at the time. Okay. And, uh, and, uh, I, he was a couple, he was in the bachelor class, the BFA class behind me. And, uh, uh, those guys were always coming and talking to the masters people about, gee, do you think I'll get cut out? Do you think I'll, you know, and, uh, he, you know, he was at that time already had a little magic about him and, uh, everybody knew it. And, uh, I just remember having a conversation with him that was really interesting to me because he was feeling insecure. And, uh, and I just thought, young man, you've just got it wired up. You're a natural. Don't worry about it. Just keep doing your thing. They're not going to boot you out of here, you know? Uh, and he was, uh, and, and at that time, even uh, he's a 
terrific guy anyway, but at that time, just a great kid from Colorado, you know. So now when you get out, now you've gone to school, you've made the commitment, I'm going to be an actor. Now you have to get it work, you have to get agent. So what path do you take? Where do you start off? And I mean, because it's, it's a big profession. I was a little bit at sea when I got out and I wound up going into up to Seattle and uh, starting on the boards. I, uh, I started my acting career on the stage. I worked at uh, Seattle Repertory Theater, the Intamon Theater, uh, the Empty Space Theater, Seattle Children's Theater. Uh, I also I had I pursued a lot of voiceover work as well and uh, would get radio commercials and things like that. Uh, that would help make ends meet, but I was also a house painter. Uh, you know, I was painting houses in Washington State in between jobs, and uh, and just sort of launched up there as opposed to here in L.A. And uh, some of that had to do with my wife. She had been, uh, we had been in college together at Washington State and been in love, and then we went, we we separated while I went to grad school and she went to Ur- Europe and was a taking dance classes there and then we sort of decided to see how things were between us uh, when she came back from there and I was just graduating and we went and did summer stock and uh, we're in the same company together and uh, found ourselves to our liking still and (laughs) stayed together and I've been uh, with her since that time I'm married since 86 and with her since 82 okay so now so you're in Seattle doing the stage yeah and now where when do you sit there and say, okay, I mean, stay, there's got to be a, a certain point where you're like, you know what, I have to go somewhere else. I mean, I mean, or I was having a lot of success. I worked at uh, the Rep Seattle Repertory Theater. I got to play great parts at the Intamon Theater. I got to play Hamlet and I got to play Stanley Kowalski. I got to play Captain Jack Absolute in The Rivals. So I was doing pretty well. But you begin to see that if you're going to be working on the stage almost exclusively, that income is going to be a difficult thing. Uh, actors equity and the union and things like that uh, are all really important but there's just but the pay was interesting but I got in a production of the play the Kentucky cycle Robert Schenken's play and it won the Pulitzer Prize for drama that year I believe it was the first Pulitzer Prize winner at that time that didn't start in New York it was a West Coast play and uh, it had started at the Intamon Theater in Seattle. Then we went down to the Mark Taper Forum. And then there was a little bit of a lull in between of about a year. And in that year was when I got representation here in L.A. and got some TV stuff. I got a couple of uh, really good episodes of Star Trek. I got a Star Trek uh, Deep Space Nine. And then I got a Star Trek The Next Generation. And then that summer I got back-to-back movies. What movies? Uh, the movie Fire in the Sky with James Garner and Robert Patrick and D.B. Sweeney and Peter Berg. And that was just a heck of a lot of fun. I shot it up in Roseburg, Oregon. So, uh, you know, thrilling to have that be one of your first movies. And I was in another one called uh, Three Ninjas Knuckle Up, which was three little boys who are ninja masters. And I was a kind of a thug who... Uh, gets beat up in every scene by an eight-year-old kid named Tum-Tum. Well, that's funny. <laughs> now, what was it like for you coming from, as I say, you know, you, you had the stage and you say, you know, you're working the stage. Going to a TV show and going to a movie set, it must be, and well, the TV shows you this shot, like the Star Trek, or sort of like a movie set. So it's got that big, that big production value. But what's that like when you do, I mean, you're in school and then you're doing the stage and then you come in and when you're doing the stage, you're doing some great plays, doing some great roles. So you're kicking, you're kicking ass every night. I mean, it, you have to get in character. It's like you have to deliver for two hours. Was it easy when you just sat there? When you got to, when they say, you know, hey, do this scene. I mean, was it? Did you have to learn with like the marks and all that? I mean, what, or was it a hard? The I had a particularly uh, my first guest star was on Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, and it was a six-hour makeup. Uh, for this creature called Tosk, and it was uh, that makeup actually won the Emmy that year for makeup, and it was uh, Michael Westmore, who was like one of the most famous makeup artists. It was it was one of his first 
was considered kind of his new works, his masterpieces, they say, uh, where he would glue the mask inside the lips and take away the kind of structure of the human face. So I had the mask glued inside my lips. I was wearing fangs. I had cat's eye contact lenses and they were hard lenses and I don't wear contacts. So that was an incredibly difficult thing. And, uh, I was fully encased in the suit. I lost 18 and a half pounds in an eight day shoot, just sweating. Wow. And, uh, I couldn't eat much in the way of regular food because it would really mess up the makeup. So I was drinking a lot of smoothies and having a lot of um, Gatorade and stuff like that. Uh, there was one day that I worked on a Friday where I basically had a 22 and a half hour day because I arrived at three in the morning to get start the makeup so I could be on set at about 930. And then I got uh, eventually, because it was a Friday, they shot late and I ended up shooting. And But when I finally was released and signed out after getting the makeup off, which took about an hour and a half, <laughs> it was 1.30 in the morning. So uh, it was 3 a.m. to 1.30 a.m. So finding my mark and all of that kind of stuff, uh, there are times when that's incredibly difficult and there are also times, but I learned pretty fast uh the differences between the stage and shooting and that waiting in between and sitting in chairs and things like that is a, is an interesting thing. But I found that I was pretty good at repeating what I had done before hitting my mark, turning the same way, remembering continuity, uh, what, you know, where, like when I raised my arm, when I didn't raise my arm, those type of idiosyncratic things, uh, I sort of had an instinct for, I'm not positive why, because I never really had a lot of on-camera training prior to when I started working, but I did find that I was reasonably comfortable on a TV set compared to the stage. Now, when you started getting these guest spots, which, you know, the, the Star Trek ones, which uh, you did three different ones in the very beginning, you've done four of your career, I believe? Uh, I've actually done quite a few of them. I've played six different characters on Star Trek. I played, uh, I I was on Star Trek Deep Space Nine twice. I was on The Next Generation once. I was in the pilot episode of Star Trek Voyager. And then I did an eight-episode arc as uh, Commander Dolem on Star Trek Enterprise, uh, the Scott Bakula captain okay. version of the show. And that, and that one, that was a particularly terrific run because I was essentially the Darth Vader of that season. I was the evil commander of the Zindi reptiles and my mission was to destroy all humans. And once again, makeup. Oh yeah. Tons of it. Now after, after you do a makeup gig, like you said, the first one, you want to get to work, but is it sometimes you sit there and go, Oh man, more makeup. I mean, cause it, as I said, it must be, it must be taxing. I mean, it must get claustrophobic. Oh, it, I mean, it's, it's quite exhausting. It is quite exhausting. And there were, uh, I've seen actors, when I've been on set for Star Trek, kind of start to lose it. Uh, what do you mean? Just, just been, one guy laid down on the ground and started to try to pull the mask off. And they were saying, don't, don't, don't. We have to use the glue removers. We have to listen. But he just unraveled one day. He was a claustrophobic, uh, you know, in his personality. And when they got him in there, he just couldn't take it. And his mask was about half of the mask that I was wearing in that episode. Uh, I did get one job on there because of my ability to wear the makeup. They had, uh, they offered me a job to play a Jem Hadar, which is another full hooded creature on deep Star Trek, deep space nine. And Rene, Rene was the director of that one. And he, uh, actually I was told, I don't know, this is for an absolute certainty, but I was told that he said, what about the guy who played Tosk? Because they'd never had a Jem Hadar before have a sort of a lead Part. The Jem'Hadar had never talked very much. They were like these kind of cold, calculating sharks who swim through space, killing things. And my Jem'Hadar was the first Jem'Hadar with a conscience. And he had a lot of dialogue. And uh, so uh, they knew that I had the capability to deliver the goods buried in that stuff, buried in that latex. And uh, so I found that pretty flattering. And, uh, and probably that had something to do with Commander Dolem too, because that was another heavily encased lizard makeup. And that was about a four-hour makeup job on Commander Dolem every day. Now, the Star Trek fans are very loyal. They're very... They have they follow you guys. Yes. But now, do they? Was it hard for them to find you because you were always in makeup, or how would? Or I mean, what would happen with that? Because it's not like you're walking down the street and they're gonna go, "Hey, 
That's exactly right. That uh, I experienced that when I go to, I've been asked to do the conventions and uh, I've done a number of them over the years. And uh, I am not that guy that you spot from across the room and say, Hey, look, it's the guy from this episode. They walk up and see the pictures on the table of the characters that I played. And it's always humorous to sit there because they say, is this you? And I say, yeah, that, that's me. I, I wouldn't be selling you a picture of somebody else. Right, right. And uh, they then, wait, but this is you too? But but this is you too? And this was, I didn't know that was you. So that's an interest, a kind of a fun part of it. And the reason that I got to do a lot of them, frankly, is because Makeup. I was covered up. So I could go back. And uh, I did alter my voice. I tossed is a completely different speaking range and tone and pentameter than, uh, say, Garanagar had. And uh, I was also a uh, Romulan on The Next Generation, and they have that clipped, really fast, sort of syncopated speech that I tried to uh, bring to it. So um, uh, it was great for me because as a kid, I was a Star Trek fan. I loved watching them, and, uh, and, and so... To get to go do it was a thrill. So for the first one, even though I was exhausted, I was so thrilled. But that mask was so, so it covered so much of me that I was really worried about whether or not what I was doing was going to come through because you don't have your eyebrows, you don't have your nostrils, you don't right. have a smile. There's no facial expressions that you use in regular conversation to imply anything that you can use. So I would sit in front of the mirror while they were putting it on me and like tilt my head in various ways and think, Oh, this looks aggressive. Oh, this looks softer. This looks curious. I would sort of find ways that I could use that mask to my advantage so that he didn't just appear as this rubber headed thing moving around on TV. Uh, so I was really happy when Tosk was well accepted and uh, that's continues to be a highly popular character with the Star Trek fans. And I've, and I've always felt like uh, th that it's kind of an honor when people come up and tell me how good they think it is. You know, well, now you said you, you had to change your voices for the certain, certain characters. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you find that voice seeing that it's not a voice that people really know? I mean, like does, <laughs> does a director say, here's what I want. Here's what you're going to do. Scott, you're going to come in, you're going to do this. Or do you sit there and go, okay, this is the voice. I mean, how do you come up with the voice? I sort of brought them in. I sort of brought the voices in, uh, Part of it is has to do with what what's going on inside the mask. Like when I was when I when I was Commander Dolem for all those episodes, I pushed my register down into here and tried to give him a slow drawl where he would emphasize words. But there was also something about the way the mask fit me that lowered my jaw so that there was a little bit of an echo, and then there was a mild lisp because of the fangs that I had on. Okay. And so I had to sort of clip my consonants and close my mouth with my lower lip instead of my top lip, if that makes sense. So it changed the way he spoke because there was this mild lisp. And that was kind of the way that I found that character's uh, register, just hanging out down in there and finding, because you have to be able to repeat it every day. It's not you can't do something that you're going to blow your voice box right. out when you got nine episodes to do. So it was a uh, uh, that was kind of how I found that one. But I will tell you one of my secrets. I was a huge fan of a particular episode of Star Trek when I was in high school with that had the Klingons in it and had an actor named Michael Ansara. And Michael Ansara had a way that he spoke. And he had a great line that we used to say to each other all the time when we were in high school because it was on in the afternoons. You'd get home from school in the afternoon and Star Trek was on. And we all watched it and quoted it and teased each other about it. And uh, Michael Ansara says in this episode, words to the effect of, uh, very funny, Captain Kirk, but I'm not so sure you will be laughing when I hack you to bits. And oh, the first time I did a Michael Ansara impression Personation when I did a character, the character Garanagar, who is a Jem Hadar in, uh, in that Star Trek episode, and uh, that voice kind of worked because I was inside that mask and he was talking the same way as Michael Ansara did, and then in a very peculiar turn of events, I met Michael Ansara okay. out in Calabasas. Uh, out near the Screen Actors Guild Hospital. He had just had some kind of session. He was sitting in a restaurant, and uh, 
I saw him sitting there and then he moved outside and he was eating his lunch out on the foyer outside. And I thought, look, I, I would really be remiss if I don't talk to this guy. So I went over, I shook his hand. I told him I really liked his work. I mean, this is a guy who was on wild, wild west and right. all the shows you and I cut our teeth on when we were kids. He was a guest star on every single one of them. He was married to Barbara Eden. Okay. You know? And, uh, so anyway, I told him this story about this voice that I played. So he takes a pen and paper out and writes down and says, I want, he's laughing, he's chuckling, you know, and he says, I want to, I want to watch it. I want to watch the episode. And then I saw him maybe two months later and he waves me over and it was the same thing. I was in, going in Barnes and Noble or something like that. And he waves me over and I walked over and I said, hi, how are you? And he said, you know, I watched that and I don't think you sound anything That's like funny. me. That's <laughs> and, funny. and I said, but it's consistent. You know, I do the thing consistently. But in between, in that time of seeing him, I had gone and done another thing. I did the uh, a Klingon, the Klingon CD-ROM live action game on the lot at Paramount where I played a Klingon. And I was doing it with all the guys who were the famous Klingons, Robert O'Reilly and J.G. Hertzler. And uh, some of the other guys who I worked with later, Rick Worthy was one of the Zindi later. He was a Klingon in this. So there's a, you see, the great thing about these jobs is even though we're all under these masks, We've worked together. Right. And But I wouldn't be able to pick a guy out on the street sometimes. Uh, that was one of the fascinating things about uh, when I played Tosk, no one in the company of Deep Space Nine ever saw my face except Cole Meany because he took me out for a drink after the last day of shooting. No one else had ever seen my face. So when I got cast as Goranagar a few years later on Deep Space Nine, because Tosk was season one and I think... Uh, the next time I did it was season four. Uh, I was told to be at the set at six o'clock in the morning and get in my makeup and all this stuff. And all right, I knew the drill. And then I got a call that said, you know what, come at nine instead of six. And when I got there at nine, the entire cast was there because they wanted to see what the guy who played Tosk looked like. Okay. So it was very cool. I mean, they were all there. They all greeted me. I shook all their hands because I'd worked with them, but I'd never, they'd never seen my face. So it was, it was, I thought that was a very nice gesture on their part. You know, hey, welcome back. And by the way, we want to know what you look like before we cover up your face again. That's I always funny. joke, you know, the people at Paramount said, yeah, go ahead and hire McDonald, but please put a mask on him. When, now, when you're doing these early acting jobs out here, when the theater was down, did you just stop doing theater then at that time? I didn't do a lot. of Theater's hard to do. I ended up, my wife and I, had, uh, when we, because the Kentucky cycle went to Broadway. And when we closed on Broadway, my first son was born in New York in 1994. So uh, we had to make a decision about whether or not to stay out east or come back west. And we both wanted to be on the west coast. So we came back to the west coast and came to L.A. because I thought that's the only way you can have a house and kids is if you're lucky enough to be working on TV, really hard to pay for that stuff in equity theater. So I came back here and I did not do any more theater because it just wasn't very feasible. Um, I had a, I really, really, it was really important to me to be a hands-on dad. So I did a lot of coaching of my sons and watching of their games and uh, just being around them. Uh, that was really, really, really important to me. And I made a few, decisions and sacrifices over the year about not doing certain things. I was offered a couple of plays in uh, Southern California theaters that I turned down because I thought now six days a week and all those hours, I, I'm not going to do that. And uh, so there were a few times like that where those decisions had to be made, compromises had to be made. And uh, so I hadn't, uh, so the theater for me went away with the kids and TV and film. What was it like being on Broadway? I really had a great time. It was a great play. Uh, and I got, and I had some incredibly great stuff to sink my teeth into. It was a six hour history play of America and highly dramatic. And, um, uh, like I said, it won the Pulitzer prize and Robert Schenken wrote it. He just recently won a Tony for, uh, all the way the, um, LBJ play that, um, Cranston. Right plays LBJ in it. And, uh, so Robert has continued on. Robert's just become a very prolific writer and, uh, and, and won lots of awards and things. So getting to do that play on Broadway was pretty incredible. And having started on the boards and having had that desire, it was, it was special and important to me, 
to be there. Uh, and my wife had preceded me there. She, we were, she was an actress in Seattle and she got in a Bill Irwin play that started in Seattle and took the same trip. It went Seattle and then, uh, down to San Francisco and then out to, uh, Broadway. So at the time that I was playing Hamlet, my wife was on Broadway. So fancy that I was Hamlet and I had like second billing in my own house. <laughs> right. <laughs> so now you said when you, when the kids, you wanted to be more hands on. So did you pretty much stop auditioning or how did you handle that? Or, or did you really were selective with your work? I just think there's less equity theater to do in LA. I mean, there's the taper and there's some of them, but, and the Geffen and places like that. But, um, I didn't, I didn't necessarily stop auditioning, but I didn't actively pursue it the way I did in Seattle, where I would get in there and audition. It's also, Seattle's an incredibly great theater community. And uh, uh, I was entrenched there and knew people, and uh, so contacts were good, you know. And I don't necessarily think I had that same thing down in L.A. Uh, But mostly it was just... um, the other thing that happened right around this time is I got in a commercial for the Bud Light Ladies Night guys. Right. The guys in dresses. Uh, and that turned into seven years. Right. So it that was, was unbelievable. I mean, it started out as a demo for a director's reel. To hold the, so that whole thing was just a demo. Yeah, the, just the first commercial, which was just us going down, and uh, uh, I said, um, I um, I heard uh, I it's the, half price for ladies' night, and the, and the bartender's wise to us, but he gives us the beer. Don't you guys all have facial hair too? Yes, yeah. we did. That was the intent. The intent was obviously, you know, you know, four guys who they're not really trying to be ladies; they're just trying to get that discount on that Bud Light. And this thing took off and exploded. And then, and I was out in New York doing other things. And then they play closed. We were out in New York and they called and said, we're going to do a second commercial, but we didn't know you were in New York. We thought you were out in LA. Can you get yourself out to LA to film the commercial? And I said, can't you guys fly me out there? And they said, no, they don't want to do that. They think they might replace you if you don't and all these types of things. And I said, I'll come out. And then we shot one uh, called Pool where we were in a pool hall and they put us with the little, the other Bud Light icon at the time, the little guy who said, yes, I am. So they put us together and that commercial was really popular. Show. Eddie Jemison. Eddie. Yeah, yeah. Terrific guy. And, uh, so we did, we did one together and that one really kind of took off. And then a couple of really bright guys at Anheuser-Busch realized we got something here with these guys that's franchisable kind of. And they took us out and we did personal appearances for the next, all the way from, from, from 94 to 99, we were pretty much doing personal appearances. We would go in and like give away t-shirts and blow into a bar and act chaotic and crazy and, and, uh, and, and that would, you know, that was, that was kind of what we did. And was that national? I mean, we're look, we, would you go to bars? Across the country, all over the country. And yeah, now, we now traveled. We traveled all over. Or what, how oh well, they they would fly us to places. We'd fly us to Bush Gardens. We went to uh, the Bud Light ladies. Went to. I mean, it was incredible. We had quite a run. We we went to I believe five Super Bowls, uh, several Final Fours, anywhere where there was gonna be a lot of people for a big event. We were at the Olympics in '96. That was the year in Atlanta of the bombings. Right. And they closed Centennial Village. And we were thinking, oh, maybe we're not going to go. And uh, it's a little known fact that when they reopened Centennial Village, where all the food and games and bars and meetings were taking place, they reop- when they swung those gates open, four guys in dresses <laughs> led 15,000 people to Bud World for a free beer on Anheuser-Busch saying, welcome back to the Olympics and way to go, America. And uh, so that was an um, that was truly an amazing experience. Well, I know it must have been a crazy because I, I I know actually the guy from my hometown was the uh, the Bud guy, the uh, guy who pushed the cart, the Bud delivery man. Uh huh. And he said, Oh, the Miller guy. Was it Miller? Yeah. yeah I guess, but he said the crowds were just nuts. I mean, yeah, it's it, it it. Oh man, we had wild times. It was crazy. We had a lot of crazy stuff go down when we were out on the roads. We were all over though. I mean, we went. 
there was one year where we were 167 days on the road. Uh, they would just fly us out somewhere and they would stick us in a Winnebago. And about four in the afternoon, we would start going to bars all over somewhere. And uh, we were, I mean, we had, I had such amazing experiences sometimes. I was sitting right next to Dan Deerdorf when somebody came and told him that he got elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Wow. And uh, I shook his hand, and I had been a Cardinal fan, as I told you, the Air Coriel uh, back in the day. And uh, I knew the stat, you know, that they only gave up four sacks an entire football season. And I leaned over to him, and I said, I just want you to know you're sitting by a guy who knows that that was maybe the greatest offensive line in history. I know you don't have any Super Bowl rings, but I remember you. And he shook my hand and he clasped my hand and he it was very he was very moved and he said you know you have no idea how much that means to hear you say that and then I got out of the way because here came Frank Gifford and Joe Namath and Joe Montana and guys like that and I mean this was the absurdity of what we were doing. Were you dressed like a woman? When no, this no, no. This okay. is like having breakfast at the Phoenician in in Arizona okay. where the Super Bowl was taking place. I think it was the Steelers Cowboys Super Bowl. So you're in the morning. So you're not in your gear, so nobody knows who you are or what you're doing there. So you have this weird anonymity. Once again, I have this peculiar anonymity, Star Trek, where nobody knows my face. And I tried really hard to not let it be known that much that I was in these in this dress and that I was this guy. I was just Hilda, you know. <laughs> and so we would wander around these places and no one would know who we were. And then we'd come out in our stuff. I got in an elevator in New Orleans and George Seifert, the former San Francisco 49er coach was in the elevator. And that was always the weird thing. You'd put your stuff on. And if we were spread out, there was a certain period of time where you were walking around without your buddies in your dress. Right. Those were always the weird several <laughs> minutes of like, where are my guys? So I don't just look right. like this guy that everybody needs to be afraid of. So I get in the elevator and Seifert says, I said, I say to Seifert, um, I'm one of the Bud Light Ladies Night guys. You don't have to worry. And Seifert, without missing a beat, says, I know who you are, and I'm still worried. That's funny. <laughs> now, what was it like going to the Super Bowl? Is that, were you able to watch the game? or were you just... we, Yes, we attended the games, and they now, wanted us. or not dressed? No, they wanted us to go. Originally, the first one we went to was in Miami when the 49ers beat the Chargers, and they wanted us to wear the dresses, and then they found out all these rules about no franchising in the stands. So we didn't go do that. But we had such success. Uh, we would go into these bars and they would they would call it getting taps where they would they would get Bud Light on tap in a bar where it hadn't been on tap before. Well, that just means a lot of money for the brewery. And we had several huge bars that we went into in Miami Beach that weekend where that hit. And I think that was a lot of, a lot of the process and the thought process that got involved with that was – We'd go into places where we already had the taps and they'd say, well, we want you to come into our bar since you're here in town. And they would say, well, what do we get as Budweiser? And so there was a lot of trading off going on. Uh, but we were uh, handsomely rewarded uh, to run around acting like goofballs. Now, when you were doing that, did you have time to do other acting gigs? Because it seems it could be very time consuming. That's a good point. It did. Uh, my career was going pretty good. Uh, with the movies and the Star Treks and things like that, and a, and a couple of uh, what, what were pretty good guest star things, and then when this, when they started to monopolize my time a great deal with this, and it was, I mean, I'm, I'm not complaining because the financial aspect of it was the whole deal. It was just they were just they Anheuser Busch was throwing a lot of money at us to get us to go do this stuff, and we were going and doing it, but it did effectively kind of kill my theatrical career for a period of time. There was a little bit of a limbo uh, um, after I finished doing the Bud Light stuff. But in between, I did take, I did book a few things. I was able to do a few things, but not very many. Uh, I remember one time Anheuser-Busch was really mad at me because I didn't go to Busch Gardens with the rest of the guys because I booked an NYPD Blue and I really wanted to do that show. And I didn't that I didn't know I was going to go. You know, it was just one of those ones where I had accepted the job and then Anheuser-Busch called and they said, well, you're ours and you need to come and do this. And I said, I can't. I accepted this other job. You didn't have me scheduled that weekend. I took the job. I feel like, you know, I owe it to them to honor my contract. So I'm going to do that. So, but it did take away 
a lot of that stuff. But I mean, it was just one of those very peculiar brass rings in this weird brass ring game that we're in where, uh, you know, <laughs> here I am this, you know, trained actor with a master's degree from California Institute right. of the Arts. And I've, and I've hit it big by running around wearing a dress, acting like a goofball, you exactly. know, <laughs> now, now at what point, um, what year, when did that end? Uh, around 99. Okay. Super Bowl 99, the Atlanta, the Atlanta Denver Super Bowl. So that must just been, yeah, now, but you got to come back and you weren't on the road a lot much, which was a good, good thing for you. It was, it was, it was hard in some ways. I was missing a lot of things. Like I missed first steps of my sons and things like that. Cause they were pretty little at this time. This was right in the heart of when they were just being born. 94, 96, my sons were born. So, uh, but like I say, it was, it was, it was lucrative enough that, that for an actor, you just couldn't say no. I mean, it was just, they would, they would, they would keep upping the ante if you, you know, and, and we did get tired. I mean, it, you know, I look back on it and I think, I, you know, cause we were, I think we did the tonight show three times. We did a lot of, we were on the today show. We were on a lot of national talk shows in, the, and this is all in the dresses, of course, you know, and uh, we did a commercial with Don Rickles and then they brought us on the tonight show to sort of ambush Rickles as a kind of a practical joke on Don Rickles. And so we had a lot of these really interesting experiential things where we were hanging out with like, like the ESPN guys at one Super Bowl. I can't remember which one we were standing with Roger Staubach most of an evening and they kept throwing it to Roger and he was doing reports from some gaming area. And, uh, so we're just, I'm just standing there with this hall of fame football player, you know, and he was nervous. He said, you're not going to do anything to embarrass me, are you? You know, this is one of the first things I've done. He was just starting out with ESPN and the broadcasting and stuff like that. You know, and I said, look, you're a hall of fame football quarterback. We're not going to do anything to embarrass you. Look at me. Look, I'm standing here right. in a dress. <laughs> I'm the one who's embarrassed. <laughs> now, when you would go to these events, did you have to drink Bud Light? Oh yes. I mean, was that part of the yes. deal? Like, oh yeah, to- yeah. They were. They always encouraged you to make sure you had an Anheuser Busch product in your hand. If it wasn't a Bud Light, make sure it's something that that an Anheuser Busch product. That must get me start getting tired too, because I'm sure people end end up sitting there and they're probably like, eh, do shot, you know, like you know that that mentality. Oh, well, there was a few places that we went in that were like that, were incredibly chaotic and wild. I mean, we were in every bar you can think of. It were because that peculiar circumstance of us guys, we fit almost anywhere because we were sort of, you know, we, we stuck out like a sore thumb anywhere we went anyway. So we could go to, I mean, they put us, they put us in gay bars in San Francisco. They put us in, uh, you know, dance clubs all over in Miami and, you know, and cowboy bars down in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, we did a whole run called make it a Bud Light, Texas, where we made nine commercials for Texas only. Uh, and they, they, they were hilarious commercials. They were really good, but they didn't run nationally. They only ran in Texas. Uh, I think, I don't remember the numbers anymore, I, but I think we ended up doing nine or 10 national commercials and another nine or 10 regional commercials okay. over the period of time, as well as all the personal appearances, radio interviews and all that stuff. That was another thing that was odd. They would put us on radio interviews. I just used to think we're a sight gag. Exactly. What are we doing on yeah. that? You know, unless the DJ was great and it'd say, you wouldn't believe what I'm looking at this morning or something. The interview would just be us like talking in high pitched voices. And you know, if he didn't set the stage, <laughs> those interviews were frequently kind of lame. <laughs> now after that, well, you ended up being on carnival. Yeah. Now, which that was one of those shows that I watched a little bit, but I want to go back and watch it on HBO, HBO go. Cause everyone says it was just different, but it was really good. Now was that, do you think you can be a season regular for that, or how 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 did how did that start? How did that audition come? Did you have to audition for that, or did someone know you? Or was no, some- I auditioned for that. It was a uh, um, I had just I had just I had just finished doing that great run on Star Trek Enterprise, and that had been eight episodes and it and uh, of that, and then I went in and auditioned for. Uh, I booked a whole bunch of stuff all in rapid succession. I got uh, a Stargate episode and went up to Vancouver and shot that because I and uh, and I got uh, Carnival. But when I went in, I read for Carnival. I, I I was sitting in the lobby and I was reading for Skinny Minor Number One. And I was thinking, 
what am I doing? I'm because I'm you know I'm five eleven two ten and you know thick, right? And I look even thicker on camera, and uh, so I'm thinking, what am I doing reading for? But oh well, I'm I'll go in and I'll read. And it, and, and John Papsidero was casting, it and he's you know, he's a very good casting director. And uh, I sat in the lobby and there was a character on the table and I was, and they have the sides sitting there for everybody who's going to audition that day. And I'm looking at this character and I'm thinking, why am I not reading for this, this thick neck roustabout who's angry about everything? I, that's the part I'm looking at and thinking, that's what I want to play. So I read skinny minor number one and I meet them all and the producers and everybody are there and I leave and I'm walking out to the street and, uh, this girl taps me on the shoulder and I didn't, she's kind of startled me, you know, and it was, she had chased me out of the office and said, they want you to come back up. They want you to read something else. And I went back upstairs and I got to read this character called Burley. I mean, his name is literally Burley and he is a Burley guy. And, uh, they just explained to me, we had in mind that we wanted this guy to be kind of fat, but then when you were reading, we thought, well, maybe we'll try you. And so I read it and uh, he's just a disgruntled roustabout who's complains about everything that he can complain about. And uh, I was lucky enough to book that job, and it was, uh, I got two episodes early that were good, that were kind of guest stars. And then they started to call and say stuff like, look, we can't, we can't make it a guest star, but you want to come out. We've got a couple of lines we want you to throw out in this one scene if you'll come out. And then, so I started to recur, and I was a recurring character. I, I don't remember the number, something, I was in like something like 17 of the 24. So I was not a regular, but I was on it a lot, and it was really, really, really a great job because coming off of that four-and-a-half-hour Star Trek Enterprise makeup, right, arriving on set, having them throw a little Texas dirt on my face, getting to grow my big Fu Manchu in, and that's it. I mean, I'm, my makeup is, you know, a base and some dirt, and I'm done. I mean, I was in and out of makeup in five minutes. I was a happy guy. Was that shot out here? Yeah, that okay. was shot all over out here uh, by Fillmore and out by Camarillo. And uh, and then the second season, they actually ha did, a, took, did a ranch that was up um, Tapa Canyon out north, out on the Ronald Reagan Freeway out there. there was a, they built sets out there so that they didn't have to travel so much from place to place because apparently the first season, that was one of the big complaints from HBO was that the, the expense for travel was too much. But it was a great job, very fun, terrific cast. Everybody was really friendly. I was in the carnival aspect, and there was another half that Clancy Brown was in, which was sort of a preacher who is, uh, um, uh, you know, it's basically a story of good and evil, and the irony is that the carnies are the good, uh, when usually they would be the evil in most movies you've ever seen. Now, you do all, you've done voice work, too. Yeah. Now, yeah. now how did you get into that? In Seattle, I have I have a, the degree in broadcasting, so I was really comfortable around the microphone, and uh, and I did early on I did things like a D like uh, KJR Radio in Seattle was a rock and roll station. When I was a kid, we lived in Seattle for a while, and my dad was in radio, and um, uh, I remembered KJR, and uh, and uh, I went out there. I did some plays with some people who were associated with him, and I did I DJed like parties for him and things like that to make extra money. I drive out there with my little pickup truck and throw the speakers in and drive somewhere for a class reunion and spin records and, and, you know, talk like a sixties DJ. If it was a 1965, yeah, you talked to the time of 10 53 degrees. And where were you when this song was number one? That's what they wanted, you know? So I did that. And then, uh, I, I, uh, met a guy who was like, you should do voiceovers. And so I got a voiceover agent and then, uh, I, and I booked a few nice campaigns, uh, Al's auto supply and general auto with a really great friend of mine, uh, who I'd been in a play with, uh, named Ken Boynton from up in Seattle. And we had a lot of fun doing those. Uh, they let us, it was a lot of ad libbing and they, and they let us and Ken and I bounced things off each other and we played really well together. So those show, those got really popular. And then I just, uh, 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 the place that I really booked a lot of stuff was when I was in New York. When I first got to New York, I signed with a pretty good agent there. And the next day they sent me on 18 voiceover auditions. Wow. And I had to finish them by a certain time in order to get to the theater to be on time for the play that night. And, uh, of those 18 auditions, I booked three. Because they were just, I mean, I'd love to tell you it was because I'm a genius, but they were thirsty for new blood. You could tell. You know, it was like, oh, we've never heard this guy before. 
And uh, I booked three of them, and one of them was a Procter & Gamble thing, and it, and it ran a lot, Oil of Olay, and it was a soap opera commercial and things. So it was a, it, you know, it was a very good start with them. And, uh, and so when I came back out West, I had some, you know, cachet as far as that stuff went and I was able to sign with agents and, you know, just particular small campaigns over the years, uh, back during the tech bubble, I voiced a whole bunch of different things for some tech companies and, uh, a lot of, uh, truck and beer spots and things like that. But, um, I've had a really eclectic career. I mean, I piece it together. I've done a lot of national commercials on camera. I've done a lot of national commercials voiceover. I've done guest stars. I've never been a series regular on a show yet. You know, uh, I would love to have that happen at some point, obviously. Uh, I had a fantastic part in um, Sam Mendes' movie Jarhead. Right. I was the drill instructor in that. And, uh, what would you like to play that role? That was really an interesting job. I, uh, it was great. I mean, that uh, you always tell yourself that you can hang with those guys, those Oscar winners. <laughs> but until you're in the room sitting down with them and you do it, you don't really know in your heart whether or not you can. You know, and uh, I mean, Mendez was coming off the American Beauty Oscar, and um, Jamie Foxx was g about to win one for Ray. And Jake Gyllenhaal was about to be nominated for one for uh, Brokeback Mountain. And, uh, um, you know, Broyles, the writer, was an Oscar-nominated guy. And, you know, Dennis Haysbert's there. Chris Cooper's in it. He's an Oscar winner. So having that experience of being with those guys and sitting around that table. And uh, I think the thing that got me mostly in with that was Mendez likes to read the script. And... Uh, I got a longer deal because Mendez likes to rehearse. And so every morning for the first about month, he would read the script once every morning and everybody would be there for that. And some people would show up just for that and then they'd leave and then he'd work specific scenes. But while we would read that, I was reading all the older guys. So I was reading the Dennis Haysbert part before he ever got cast. I was reading the Chris Cooper part before he ever got cast. It was that kind of a thing. So uh, Sam and I had a lot of contact because of that. He would come and he would say, this scene, this kind of needs to go this way. And they had done a reading at Shutters after I was cast as the DI. They had done a reading at Shutters, and they, Debbie Zane was the casting director, and she called me in a little bit of a panic and said, Sam wants you to read all these parts, and I don't really know you well enough to ask you to do that and whether or not you can do that. And I said, sure, of course I can do that. And uh, I said, you know, I'm a voiceover artist. I've done some cartoon shows. I've done some stuff. I, I can do it. But I sure would like to have a script before we start. And she's, what? You don't have a script yet? And I said, no, I haven't heard anything from you guys since you hired me. <laughs> and then they sent me one that day, and I just sat down and separated it out, and I had my characters highlighted in different colors and little notes to myself, you know, just to remind myself what voice I was going to use uh, as each different character. And then we would read it every day, all the time. We would read it and we would read it and we would read it. And then interestingly enough, the first days of actual film production were my scenes with, as the drill instructor. But up to that, I had two Marines who kind of trained me. Uh, Sergeant Major Jim Deaver and Staff Sergeant Tom Mender. And Mender was a former DI. And so I would just go into those old barracks that they had built and I would walk around with him and I would just pick his brain looking for some kind of clue about the key to playing this drill instructor. Because, of course, Arlie Emery in Full Metal Jacket is the right. standard. But I think, you know, people always say that and I think, yeah, but he was a drill instructor. Right. You know, did Arlie Emery play Hamlet when he was 29? You know, I don't think he did. I was not in the Marine Corps. I'm trying to do the core justice, the movie justice and myself justice as an actor and get it right. You know? So I was really, really picking Tom's brain and he was very patient with me. And, uh, he just finally one day said something that, you know, cause I knew I could scare people. I knew I could scream and yell. I wasn't worried about that part of it. I wanted his intention. And she, and he said one thing one day, which was the funny thing about it is, is everybody thinks that the drill instructor is trying to get rid of people. So we don't want anybody to go. We want them all. Right. We want them all to stay and we want them all to live. And when he said that, it really dawned on me. These guys 
train these boys and then they send them out and then they find out who makes it and who doesn't. And never, I'd never thought about that. You know, I'd only thought about it from that perspective of getting yelled at as opposed to the guy who's doing the yelling. So it was a, it was a fascinating role in that regard. We went out to Victorville for a week, lived in tents, dug fighting holes. I got to fire all those weapons that they fire in those movies. Uh, I shot a uh, Coca-Cola can from 75 yards with one of those scout sniper rifles. Uh, first one I pulled a little high. Second one, I hit the can. I was one of the only guys to hit the can. I was really proud of that. But, you know, I mean, I, I've done a little hunting. Right. But this rifle, I mean, it, it's unbelievable. I mean, it, they're perfect, you know. The, you know, the windage and everything. These, I mean, the stuff that these guys know and the stuff that's just that they can do is fascinating to me. So, you know, that was a really fun job just because of the high caliber of the talent that was around me in it. I mean, those are some really high quality actors to be, to get to work with. We still have a few minutes left. Um, what's coming up for you? Anything on the books? Uh, no, I don't really have a lot. I, I'm just, I always tell people, you know, they say, what are you doing? You know, what's your career? And I say, well, I drive around auditioning and then every once in a while, somebody pays me to quit driving around, but I just voiced uh, a character for a, uh, CD-ROM game but I'm not allowed to talk about it because I signed this big NDA, so I can't give them the PR that I wish I could, uh, but I, I, I feel like I need to honor that. I did shoot an episode of uh, the show Scorpion on CBS this year, which was a heck of a lot of fun because Robert Patrick is right. the lead on that show, and he and I had done Fire in the Sky together all that time ago. But I'm also in this documentary about Star Trek that's going to come up. Uh, you have interviewed Ian, uh, Ian Romain. And, and Brian Falkweiss. And, and Brian, too. And, uh, so I'll be in that and, uh, that's going to be a really fascinating thing for Star Trek fans. Anybody who wants to see it because they've got a really, they've got a really nice group of people that they've interviewed for this thing. And so, and a lot of really interesting dynamics going on with that. So that's been very fun to be, uh, cause I'm digging through my old files and finding old memories and coming up with thoughts. Cause I mean, I did a lot of Star Trek episodes, I think like 13 or 14 or 15 and they were a long enough ago now that it was good for me to kind of remind myself now after that show comes out i bet you'll do more uh, conventions too <laughs> i don't know i don't know i'd be happy to go do them i enjoy them people like to make fun of those things but uh i don't really see the difference between a guy who walks in there wearing a captain kirk jersey and a guy who i run into at dodger stadium wearing a dodger jersey exactly. I, mean, I think it's the same thing it's just what you love and, uh, you know, uh, uh, I don't know how much time we have left. Do I have time to tell a quick story? We have about a minute and a half. Okay. Well, anyway, I got invited to go to opening day Dodgers. Uh, uh, this is probably a decade ago. And uh, I couldn't go because I was doing a sci-fi convention. And on a fluke, I'm coming from the sci-fi, sci-fi convention and I meet the guy at the gas station. And he says, oh, man, how weird was that? Seeing all those weirdos in all those costumes. And I said pointed at him and said, have you looked in a mirror today? Right. He was at all Dodger gear on, you know, and I said, and and you don't get to meet the utility infielder, me. I mean, I'm not Sandy Koufax. I'm not Picard or Shatner, but they get to meet me, shake my hand, get my autograph and hear a story from me. You, you're going to pay the same amount of money to go to Dodger stadium and have several beers and feed your family and, and, you're, and you're not going to get an autograph. So I, they win. <laughs> I want to thank you for coming on, Scott. Do thank you, you do, very much. Do you tweet or anything? Uh, I do not. I'm not a tweeter. All right. Well, uh, yes. no website. Well, you know, look him up. Look up his stuff and follow his old work. Yeah, you know? look me up on IMDb and uh, and uh, thank yeah. you very much. No this problem. is very fun. And uh, people, just follow me on Twitter, at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. I tweet a lot. I haven't tweeted lately. I had a friend in town. I don't tweet, I don't tweet that much. I do everyone's well. I'll go to my website, coopertalk.net. That's coopertalk.net. I have over 385 episodes up on there. And so you can also contact me there, cooper at coopertalk.net. There's a Cooper Talk page on Facebook, but I haven't updated it, I think, in a year. So I'm Steve Cooper on Facebook. And if you go to iTunes or Stitcher, type in one word, Cooper Talk, and you'll find my show there. And go to my other website, stopthesalt.com. That's stopthesalt.com. You know, it was three years ago. I got out of the hospital with my heart condition. And so I wrote a cookbook, low sodium, because low so too much salt's bad for you. Stopthesalt.com. It's 120 recipes, all easy to make. There's no pictures. There's no lists and lists of stupid ingredients, so you can just look through them. There's a key up front of how much to make. 
You go in, these dinners take like 20 minutes. So go there and buy it there. You can buy it on uh, Amazon or Barnes & Noble. But if you buy it at StopTheSalt.com, I'll sign it. I'll even ship it to you, and I make more money. So check that out. And also, so once again, send me an email, Cooper, coopertalk.net. Have a wonderful 4th of July week, and I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. I will talk to you next week.